The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. Well, dear brothers and sisters, it is a joy for me and a tremendous privilege and pleasure and an honor to be among you this Lord's Day. I do bring fraternal greetings on behalf of Pastor Brian Wheeler, our newly installed Pastor Greg McGonigal, and myself along with the saints who are still thawing out there in Virginia. We also want to extend thanks to each of you for allowing Pastor Jerome to be among us back in December to share of the work there that is going on in Dahabon and allowing me to go with him back in 2019. So dear church, rest assured of our prayers for each one of you. This morning I do indeed have the stewardship of opening up God's most holy and infallible word unto you. I would invite you to take in your Bibles, open them up to 1 John chapter 3. We will begin our time in the word by reading verses 1 through 3, and we'll focus the majority of our time in the first part of verse 1. Now, my congregation would tell you that I have the tremendous gift of taking one verse and creating an entire series out of it, and I am going to attempt, by God's help this morning, to focus in on this verse, but as you'll see, the depths and the riches of the glorious doctrine of adoption will be had before us this morning. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, we are now the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever." George Mueller was a native German or a Prussian. He was born on September 27th, 1805, and he lived to the ripe old age of 92. He saw the great awakening of 1859, which he said led to the conversion of hundreds of thousands. He labored under D.L. Moody for some time, preached for Charles Spurgeon, and even inspired the missionary Hudson Taylor And while we cannot agree with every point of Mueller's theology, there is something very intriguing to what he is most known for. In 1834, when he was only 28 years of age, he founded the Scripture Knowledge Institute for Home and Abroad, which focused on five areas of ministry, schools for children and adults to teach Bible knowledge, two, Bible distribution, three, missionary support, four, tract and book distribution, and five, to board, clothe, and scripturally educate destitute children who have lost both parents by death. The accomplishments of all five branches were very significant, 
but the one he was most known for around the world in his own lifetime and still today was the orphan ministry. He built five large orphan houses and cared for some 10,024 orphans in his lifetime. When he started in 1834, there were only accommodations for 3,600 orphans in all of England, and twice that many children under eight were in prison. One of the great effects of Mueller's ministry was to inspire others so that 50 years after Mr. Mueller began his work, at least 100,000 orphans were cared for in England alone. The majority of children that were under Mueller's care were undesirable in the eyes of the world. Many children were sick, terminally ill, troublemakers, etc. The world could not understand why a man would do such a thing giving his life to caring for these orphans, for those without a father or a mother, for those whom it would be difficult to care. Mueller lived his life in faith, trusting God to provide in all areas of his life and sacrificing tremendously. But the question remains, why would he do such a thing? Why would he go to such great lengths to care for those precious children? And I would suggest your church that one of the things that Mueller knew best is the truth that God the Father has adopted a multitude of children into his own family. Those children who are undesirable, who are sick with sin and live their lives in rebellion to God. Mueller had been adopted into the family of God, once being God's enemy, but now his child. The same is true for who all believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in 1 John 3, we are presented with this wonderful truth of adoption. It is the doctrine of all doctrines. One that no matter how many years you've been following Christ, you still stand amazed and in awe that you are called a child of the living God. You are a child of the king, but not just any king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. At this juncture in the book of 1 John, to help us with a little bit of context so we don't jump in uninformed, this section paves the way for the second major division of this short letter. In the first section of 1 John, John has urged his readers to live in the light as God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John has focused much attention on rebuking the false teachings of the Gnostics, showing them to be heretical. And now the second division focuses on developing the theme of growing spiritually mature in Christ. The focus is turned on the child of God. And at the outset of this second division, which focuses really on our pursuit of holiness as God's children and our maturation in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the all-important reminder is there that as believers, the fatherhood of God is that which encourages and sustains us in this present life. We are God's children, not just in the present, but for all of eternity, from here and forever. God's love is so lavished upon us, not only in the past, not only in the present, but dear brother and sister, even in the future. As one has said, our present state as God's children rests on God's loving action in the past. And we need to understand, don't we, dear brothers and sisters, that the Bible never tells us to do something without first telling us who we are. 
We cannot pursue that holiness without which no one will see the Lord if we live as if we are not the blood-bought children of God. If we forget that, then we will never attain to that maturation and that holiness that God calls us to. And so many of us forget this, don't we? We forget our standing before our God, our Father. We forget that we have been adopted into his beloved family. We forget that we are no longer under condemnation nor under his wrath, but rather we are under the sweet and free grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you forgotten this, dear brother or sister? As we look now to verse one, we find there written, behold, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. The injunction here is to take note with a heightened sense of enthusiasm present. Consider, look, marvel, can you believe what you're hearing and reading? This is the idea behind the word behold. And so many of us need to wake up even to the truth of God's word that we are his adopted children. Wake up and take notice to the marvelous truths that are here about to flow ever before us from the fountain of God's word. There is something to be excited about, to delight ourselves in. And before we go any further, I want to stop and ask, have you indeed come prepared today to hear from God in his word, to be amazed and to stand in awe of his grace, to stand in awe of the privileges and the benefits that are ours as children of God? Brothers and sisters, if your heart is not stirred at the very thought of adoption and the Father's great love for you and his people, then something is terribly wrong. Cast aside all distractions, every weight and sin that clings so closely and ask the Lord to help you to behold and to marvel at the wonderful, wonderful truth that you are his child. Behold your great God. Satan wants nothing more than to see the word of God fall upon the rocky soil. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Now the first thing that we ought to take notice of is the source of our adoption. It comes from our Father who is in heaven. He has not always been our Father. He is not the father of every human being either, but he is the father of those who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. As one commentary translates this passage, consider how lavish is the love of the father which has been bestowed upon us. It's beautiful, isn't it? The word that is translated here is what manner in some of your translations but signifies of what degree, not of necessarily of what kind. It can also be translated as of what country, implying that God's love is so unusual, it's so unearthly, so unique to our experience that it doesn't make sense from an earthly perspective. It really grants a sense of wonder and all amazement to our very souls for God's love is so foreign to mankind. And we struggle, don't we, to understand the depths of such love. How great the Father's love. Literally, the text says he has given love. Another man of God writes, his love is not simply exhibited to believers, but is imparted to them. 
That is to say, we get to experience the love of God experientially for ourselves, not just to hear about it from someone else. We have God's love poured and lavished upon us firsthand. It is a love altogether different from this world. And indeed, this is the truth. Think about it with me for a moment. Knowing God is not just knowing a set of facts about him. Even the demons know those things and believe. Rather, knowing God is experiencing firsthand the love of Christ, of knowing firsthand that you have the forgiveness of sins in his name, of tasting the liberties, the privileges, the benefits of adoption. And brothers and sisters, it is walking in them, living by the truths of God's word and seeing them manifest in your life with much fruit. This great love of the Father that has been bestowed on us, that has been lavished out upon us and upon his church. The idea is that this is a permanent result of divine love. It cannot be changed. It cannot be lost. The father who is immutable, who does not change, lavishes his love on his children and they will forever be his children. That's good news, isn't it? Think of how drastically things change around us in our own world. Even think of how frequently we change. But God does not change, beloved. And our relationships, relationship, once we have been converted, does not change with the Lord of glory. It's as Numbers 23, 19 reminds us, God is not a man that he should lie, nor son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Or as Malachi 3.6 says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. And the Father's great love has been bestowed upon us. Now who is us in this passage? I think as good students of God's word, we need to be asking that question. Who is the us here in this passage? The language of family, and we need to be absolutely clear and certain here, is not bestowed upon all human beings who have ever been born. But this is language specifically towards Christians. Outside of Christ, God's fatherly love is not lavished upon you, nor anyone else in this world. Scripture tells us that our posture towards God from the moment of our conception is one of an enemy, not a child. So we see that unless you turn from those sins and trust in Christ, you will not receive, you will not be able to experience this type of love. You will be forever left in the dark about adoption. But something must be done. Something must take place and change in your life. You cannot just stay there forever, a stranger to our Father who is in heaven. But it's as the Gospel of John reminds us, but as many as received him to them, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were not born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The doctrine of adoption is said to be the most glorious of all doctrines. And when we understand the clear teaching of scripture on the matter, we will indeed come to agree. Spurgeon in preaching a sermon on adoption broke up the doctrine 
into three really crucial elements. And I'm utilizing much of what he drew from the well of scriptures. He called the three crucial elements of adoption, the grace of adoption, the privilege of adoption or privileges of adoption, and the duties of adoption. And so I want us to look at all three today because I'm convinced that in so doing, we will come to better understand what 1 John 3, 1 is teaching us and the Spirit will take that truth, brothers and sisters, and infuse our hearts with joy and love, amazement, wonder, and awe about the great love that our Father who is in heaven has for his beloved bride. Turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, first, the grace of adoption. The word of the Lord reads, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Gleaning now more from Spurgeon, he gives us the definition of adoption. And listen closely. Adoption is that act of God, whereby men who were by nature children of wrath, even as others, and were of the lost and ruined family of Adam, are from no reason in themselves, but entirely of the pure grace of God, translated out of the evil and black family of Satan, and brought actually and virtually into the family of God so that they take his name, they share in the privileges of sons, and they are all, to all intents and purposes, the actual offspring and children of God. And we need to take note there, this is indeed an act of pure grace. No man could ever attain the privilege and right of adoption by his own merits. As Ephesians tells us, it is only according to what? The good pleasure of his will. Dear brother and sister, do you understand that adoption is indeed an act of pure grace? Nothing that you deserve or have earned, but something that God has graciously lavished upon you. Why do you live continually as if you have earned it? Why is our pride ever before us gloating at all that it has? Why do we not give thanks to God enough for this pure act of grace? It can be illustrated as considering being born into a royal family. What did anyone do to be born into that family, to receive those privileges, to become royalty? Nothing. And in fact, that is the case for each and every one of us. We may not be royalty, but we didn't choose who our parents were going to be. We didn't choose where we were going to be born. We didn't even choose the first language that we were going to speak. And it's the same with being born into the family of God. And at the same time, there may be some of you here who need to trust and to receive and believe the word that God has spoken about you, you, his dear son or daughter. Believe what he has done. Embrace with the heart of faith. 
Your pride simply won't allow you so many times to believe this is actually true about you. But it is. If indeed you have been born again, you are a glorious child of God. But in adoption, brothers and sisters, we must understand what indeed is taking place. This is an act of pure grace, we've said, whereby God makes us his children. Remember, from Ephesians and other of the teachings of Scripture, we were all once dead in our sins and trespasses, enemies of the living God, but according to the good pleasure of his will, he adopts us. He now unites us to Christ, our covenant head, as the head of the church. It's not as if God adopted the best of the best. We know our hearts, don't we? But he adopted the sons of a rebel. He adopted those who, like George Mueller adopted, the ones that nobody wanted, the ones that are nothing but troublemakers, the ones that are sick to their very core with their sin. One would expect a king to adopt a son of his lords, another man of nobility, someone who had a prominent heritage. But no, this king, our king, adopts a felon, the one who has committed treason against the throne. We were enemies guilty of rebellion participating with our head Adam, the thief who stole the fruit from the master's garden, the proud traitor who dared to be a rebel against God, as Spurgeon said. But nonetheless, God has lovingly, he has lovingly brought us into his family. We were outside the camp were the cherubim guarding the entrance with their flaming swords, but now God has come to us for us and indeed brought us into his dwelling place, the inner sanctuary, and conferred to us the titles of son and daughters. Brothers and sisters, we do indeed have no words to express, so we must fall to our knees in worship and to give thanks. Let thankfulness spring from our lips, the same lips that were once covered from the dirt of the graves in which we were dead in our sins. All of the saints of God must confess that we are the last people that we should expect God to adopt into his family. We know what is truly indeed inside of our hearts. We know what kind of people we would be without our Lord. And with Paul, we exclaim, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Our adoption is not based on any decision that we have made It is not as if God has foresaw that we would have faith and then so adopted us. This is unbiblical. For God predestined us, as Ephesians says, to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. In eternity past, he chose to make us his people, which would be fulfilled in the coming of our Lord Jesus and the covenant of grace. The reasons why he chose to do so are only known to the mind of God. Some may say, well, that's not fair. It's not fair that God would choose some and then leave others to their destruction. Well, if we got what was fair, beloved, all of us would be spending eternity in hell. That's fair. But the workings of his grace, the workings of his grace and the motivation of him doing what he does should be left only with him. And we must be content with not knowing the ins and outs of the eternal decree. He hath chosen some unto eternal life to the praise of his glorious grace. 
and he have left others to suffer the eternal punishment of their sins to the praise of his glorious justice. And he is right and just for doing so. Turn with me now to Romans chapter 9. Here we're going to uncover a few teachings about what we're speaking of here. Because there in Romans chapter 9, the second part of verse 20, Paul himself was dealing with a similar argument. I'm sure you're familiar with it. There we read, will the thing formed to say, will say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Verse 21, does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called not only of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles. All men deserve to be punished. He has the right to punish them. And at the same time, he has the right to pardon whomsoever he chooses. He can leave whomever he wills in their sins, unwashed, unforgiven, unsaved, in which they willfully continue the course of their rebellion and their love of sin. No one desires to come to God unless he has first been regenerated, justified, and then adopted into the family of God. And brothers and sisters, this on a practical level is why we preach the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we evangelize. We cast the seeds on all types of soils, knowing that there is nothing in us that will cause someone to be born again. And there is nothing in the person who is hearing the gospel. It is entirely dependent upon the spirit of the living God to take those seeds of the gospel and cause much fruit to come forth. We are mere heralds heralds of the king and only relaying that message from the king. We are adopted sons and daughters pleading with the world to be reconciled to God and then in turn become children of God. Adoption is an act of pure grace. Continuing there now in Romans 9, in verse 8, we're going to start seeing and unraveling these privileges of adoption Romans 9, 8 reads this way. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. In tandem with God's word, chapter 12 of our confession of faith, of adoption, it's really a short paragraph, but perhaps one of the most important ones found in our confession of faith. As we have seen the grace of adoption, While we are here, we must recognize and identify now the privileges of adoption. And our confession does such a wonderful way, it does such a wonderful job at laying this out for us. And we need to understand that our confession of faith is nothing more than a summary statement of what the Bible teaches. Our confession in chapter 12, and I'll just read it for us, it says, all those that are justified... God vouchsafed in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and the privileges of the children of God. They have his name put upon them. They receive the spirit of adoption. They have access to the throne of grace with boldness. 
They are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as a father. Yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. So what are the privileges of being a child of God? Well, the first, as our confession points out, is we indeed as children of God have his name put upon us. God has declared us as his own, his treasured possession. It's as if we have taken God's last name upon ourselves. You belong to this family now. Like father, like son, you bear his name. You are part of his family. You are to image God and reflect his glory to this world. Revelation 3.12 has something to say about this. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Secondly, from our confession and from the scriptures, we see that not only we have his name put upon us as children of God, but we receive the spirit of adoption. Regeneration, brothers and sisters, brings forth the nature of children, where we are not only made his children, but we're made partakers of the grace of God. For through him, we have both access by one spirit to the Father. Further, we have access to the throne of grace with boldness, We are invited, we are summoned to come in, brothers and sisters, into the holy of holies. The cherubim have put down their swords now and we come through the merits and the works of Christ into the throne of God with a holy confidence. Not trusting in ourselves, not trusting in our own works, but trusting in the merits and the finished work of Christ. Further, we're enabled to cry, Abba, Father. 2 Corinthians 6.18 reads, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Here, what is pictured for us is this intimate relationship with God. We are near now. We're not far off. We are sons, not strangers or enemies. So you, dear brother, sister, must come near. Don't stand far off. We are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. Further, we're pitied. And this is perhaps a, a word that we don't understand. We use it differently today than those in the 17th century. But simply, what does this mean? Well, it means that our Father has compassion on us. In all of your sufferings, your trials, your temptations, dear brothers and sisters, the Lord has compassion upon you. He is very near to those situations. He hears the yearnings and the cries of your heart. Psalm 103, 13, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Are you tempted by Satan? Christ looks down upon you, feeling the weight and the trials of those temptations. He resonates with those sighs and those groans that are too deep for words. He knows what it's like to be tempted in every way that you are, but the hope is that he remained without sin. Remember the great love of God, brothers and sisters, his enormous heart for his people, the comfort that comes from him in every situation. You are not alone, and those prayers are being heard. 1 Peter 5, 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And listen, 
casting all of your care upon him, for he cares for you. Further, we're protected. A wonderful privilege of being a child of God is that we have a chief shepherd who protects the sheep and nothing comes about in this life that is not under the providence of God. And even in his providence, his kind providence, he has given us under shepherds in the local church to care for our very souls that model and emulate the Lord Jesus Christ and his shepherd heart for his people. Another man of God said it this way, just as a hen protects her brood under her feathers from birds of prey that seek their lives, so the Lord makes his own loving arms encircle his children. You're also provided for. Do you know that? The Lord provides for you. Maybe not everything you want, but everything that you need. Amen. A father looks after his children and always gives them adequate provision. Remember, even as you look around on this Lord's Day, the provision of your brothers and sisters in Christ. What a privilege to have siblings in the family of God. Did you know that your brothers and sisters in Christ are gifts of God for you? for your good, for your holiness, for your sanctification. The Lord provides for his people. Further, a glorious privilege of God is that we're also chastened by him as a father. Now, this is one that naturally our flesh kind of steps back to a little bit, right? We don't like discipline, chastening, hearing these words, but here is the privilege that we so often forget as the children of God. A true son, a true son or daughter will be disciplined for he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. What a lesson it is for even us as parents to think and remember how God deals with us. Often we don't think, we, we, we think, don't we, that, that when we receive the fatherly discipline, then it means that God doesn't love us. Anybody ever felt that way? But that's the lie that Satan would have us to believe. Proverbs 3.11, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Without fatherly discipline, we are not children of God. We have not been adopted from Hebrews, but if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are Ill illegitimate and not sons. But our father chastens us, doesn't he? So that we may share in his holiness. That holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Listen again to the author of Hebrews. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Is that your prayer, dear brother or sister? That the Lord would use even my own correction, discipline, chastening to bring about this peaceable fruit of righteousness in my own life. Further, not only discipline, and I love the wisdom of the framers of our confession, how they ended with discipline, and then yet, right here, they put the glorious truth that the children of God are never cast off. We are disciplined, yes, but we are never cast off. That relationship is never severed, but we're sealed until the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. We are forever the children of God, secured in his hands, and nothing nor no one nor anything can ever pluck us from his grip. Not even our sins, not even our feelings, not even our trials, 
not even our sufferings, not even Satan himself, if you truly belong to Christ through repentance and faith, you are eternally secure in him. Amen? Brothers and sisters, we have so many privileges of being adopted into God's family. So meditate upon these things. Allow these things to fuel your faith, to trust in the Lord. You are his in Christ. Lastly, turn with me please to Galatians 4. We're going to now see the duties of adoption. The duties of adoption. We have heard of first the grace of adoption, second the privileges of adoption, and now the duties of adoption. Beginning in verse 4 of Galatians 4, there we read, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, listen now, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Because of our adoption of the creation of the new man, the old man and his entanglements are put to death. They're crushed. We are set free from the bondage of sin, Satan, and death. Now we become slaves of righteousness. The law no longer condemns us, but it now directs us beautifully into the path of righteousness. We are now under a new covenant. We are no longer under Adam. The law is not thrown to the wayside now for the believer, but the curse of the law has been removed. An important distinction. The law is no longer our judge. We are not under its condemning jurisdiction. We have nothing now to do with the old, but only with our new family and our new standing in Christ. But too often, so many Christians continue to live. They continue to live as if they're still under the rule of their old master, Satan himself. They forget that they've been liberated. They've been set free and they've been given a new hope in Christ. It would be as if the Queen of England sent you an American a letter saying that you've not paid your taxes to England. You will be punished for this, she says. And you respond with all dignity and respect, I am not under your jurisdiction. Condemn me if you would like, but I owe nothing to England. While the law does not condemn a child of God and he or she is no longer under its curse, the law of God remains that which guides and instructs our very way of life. It is a delicate balance to maintain. Christ covers all of my sins. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is my substitute. And yes, I am guilty. I am guilty. But my guilt has been put upon the scapegoat's head. Christ has made me free from the curses and the rigors of the law. However, this doesn't mean now that I discard the law. But now I have a different relationship to the law. The curse is gone, but obedience from the heart remains. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. The 10 commandments now serve as the guide for the believer as we are being conformed into the image of Christ. We can look there to understand God's will for his children and he wills that they live a life of obedience by the help and the grace of his spirit.
And now, brothers and sisters, because we are his children, we have the ability to obey him from the heart with the help of the Spirit of God. Like father, like son. Don't forget the analogy, conform to the image of Christ. Made in the image of God, and we are like mirrors that reflect God back to himself. If you're here today without Christ, if you're not considered a child of God, you must know that God the Father is summoning you to himself this morning. By faith and repentance of your sins, you can indeed be adopted into the family of God. You can be washed, cleansed, renewed, made whole, and set free. There is no sin too great, and that's wonderful news. There is no sin too gruesome and beyond the saving forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the power of the cross turning enemies into children. Even you young children who sit here and listen to the sound of my voice, you're not exempt either from the call of our Savior. Christ will even save you, young ones. Believe upon the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Have faith in Christ. So the question that remains for us as we seek to kind of conclude this and apply it to our own hearts is, first, how do I know if I'm a child of God? That's a very good question. How do I know? How can I have the assurance that I indeed belong to him? Well, from the scriptures, one of the first things we see is that there are genuine fruits of repentance in my life. I'm not like what I once was. I have new desires, strange ones that I never anticipated to love the things of God. I love God's people. 1 John 2.29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Are you a practicer of righteousness? From there, and much more could be said about that, but we'll leave it there, another assurance or a sure sign that we are a child of God is if we possess the Holy Spirit. And this means having the Spirit at work in your life. And if you're unsure about the Spirit's work, then you must return to the Word of God and be constant in prayer to be certain that the Spirit indeed dwells in you. And there are fruits of the Spirit. You're, you're born again, you're regenerated. You have a new conviction you have a desire to obey God. You have a love for God and his word. You have a knitting of the hearts among the brethren, etc., etc. Romans eight fourteen. For as many are as led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. From there, and one that the Lord has been teaching our congregation in his kind providence, a most certain sign, an assurance that we are part of the family of God is if there is indeed a genuine love for the brethren. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. How can you be a child of God if you do not love the people of God? 
1 John 3.10, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God and nor he is he who does not love his brother. How can you be indifferent to the brethren? How can a child of God not want to be with God's people? Consider how committed Christ is to his bride. And then how can we say that we're genuine children of God if we're not committed to his bride as well? Christ loves his church and his children must also. Not coming to church, but love the brothers and sisters that make up the church. There is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. God has given each of you, his children, the wonderful gift, this wonderful gift of his people to pursue holiness with. You're not alone. You have God's people to help you in your pursuit of holiness, to worship your king as we've done together with one voice this morning, and then to see the fulfillment of the great commission by taking this glorious gospel to the nations. 1 John three fourteen. Listen, we know We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But don't miss the assurance. We know that we know that we belong to God. We are assured that we are the children of God if we love the brethren. So do you, dear brother or sister, love God's people? Do you desire to be with them? to share your very life with them. Not just see them one hour a week, but to love them. Remember, they are God's gift to you. Another duty or assurance that comes from the privileges of adoption, if God is your father and you are his child, then you are bound to trust him. This one is so difficult for many of us. Some of you, even today, are really struggling with trusting your good Father who is in heaven. Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lead not on your own understanding. Don't doubt your standing before the Father every time that you sin. This is only to incur more sin. Don't think that your sin is undoing what Christ has done on the cross and when he said it was finished, it was. You do not need Or excuse me, you do not keep yourself as a child of God. God keeps you and preserves you because he is faithful. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Psalm 9, 9, the Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble, and those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Don't fret, dear brother or sister. Don't be anxious. Trust in your Father who is in heaven. And we know, don't we, that all things Work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Finally, from this, we need to take assurance that we are indeed the children of God based on the glorious new covenant, based on God's covenant of grace, this covenant which creates and strengthens faith within us. God is a promise keeper, isn't he? 
He makes covenant and he keeps covenant. Abraham is our example of this. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was counted to him as righteousness. Hear the voice of your covenant God calling to you in the promises of his covenant. Do not harden your heart through unbelief. Do not turn away from the living God. He summons you, he commands you through his covenant to trust him. Don't resist his word. Allow it to pierce you and to reveal the true nature of your heart so that you may find rest and forgiveness each and every day in Christ. Respond, dear brothers and sisters, to God's promise by coming anew and afresh to him through Jesus Christ, the most gracious, kind, and sympathetic Savior. And if you do, you will always be welcomed, never cast off. God's covenant calls us to trust him. And his solemn oath, his strong promise gives us confidence. Why? Because he is faithful. Listen to Hebrews 6, 17. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. If you are here without Christ, there is a very real exhortation, once again, to enter into the covenant of grace by faith. Listen to the prophet Isaiah. Ho, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, come. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Or the words of our savior, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Christ will never reject those who come to him in faith. Come and behold your God. So dear brother or sister, live as a child of God. This is certain. You must do this. Live by faith and not by sight. Live by faith and not what you feel. Put your eyes firmly on Christ, even now. Behold his glory. Sit at his feet. Learn from him. Go to him. Live and share this glorious adoption with all of the family of God. Meditate upon these things, brothers and sisters, and find hope in Christ alone, for we are the children of God. I want to leave you with a word from Revelation 21.6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Let's pray. Our Father, our gracious Father who is in heaven, 
Thank you for your kindness to your people this morning. As we have just had a slight taste of what it means to be the adopted children of God, help us to live in this reality. Lord, may we love one another and encourage one another. And Lord, may you be pleased to save a multitude through the preaching of your word. Help your people. We do pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.